I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Liz Clayman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, May 21st, 2020. I'm Trey Yings. Russia is getting hit hard with the COVID-19 outbreak and is now the second worst hit country in the world. Generally speaking, uh, you have had a lot of exposure because Russia uh, is uh, alongside China, the country with the most shared borders in the world, including a shared border with China. So they've had exposure uh, to the virus since at least December, maybe even November. This is the Fox News Rundown, global pandemic. On Wednesday alone, the World Health Organization reported more than 100,000 new cases of COVID-19, the highest single-day number since the outbreak started. Some countries like China are bracing for a second wave, while others like Russia are struggling to contain the first. Over the next few minutes, you'll get the latest headlines on the global COVID-19 outbreak and hear from Matthew Rojansky, the director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, about the pandemic in Russia. Starting first, though, with a new report in Foreign Policy magazine. A data leak from a Chinese military university indicates the country could have had more than 600,000 total cases of COVID-19. Fox News has not independently confirmed this information, though according to the report, 230 Chinese cities were affected by the coronavirus. The new information outlined in this report is extremely specific, providing GPS coordinates of where confirmed cases took place across China. Now to Europe, where countries are attempting to reopen. Each nation is taking a unique approach, hoping to get their economies up and running again. Greece's prime minister announced this week that Greece will reopen for tourism in June. While some tourists may undergo sample tests for COVID-19, Greece will not implement widespread testing or quarantine for visitors. The country is also slashing consumption taxes on many goods and services in an effort to encourage broader spending. Finally, in Russia, the coronavirus continues to infect thousands each day. While new cases are stabilizing, Russia has seen more than 300,000 total cases. Russia is reporting very low death numbers at around 3,000 people, causing some to question whether Moscow is being transparent about the mortality rate. So why is Russia getting hit with so many infections, despite seemingly having more time to prepare? For those of us trying to understand and place uh, the COVID crisis in Russia in the broader global context, it, it wouldn't be the only case of differentiated experience, right? We have seen how some East Asian countries have appeared to have much lower death rates. Germany had a much lower death rate. This is Matthew Rojansky, the director of the Wilson Center Kennan Institute. But in those cases, it's more easily explained by different uh, social responses, different policy responses, and quite frankly, um, you know, higher levels of infrastructure and capability to respond to the public health dimension. In Russia, very little of that is true. Outside the city of Moscow, public health is uh, generally quite abysmal. Um, You do not generally have high levels of compliance with um, mandatory or suggested uh, public health guidelines because of the low levels of trust in the state. Um, And generally speaking, uh, you have had a lot of exposure because Russia uh, is uh, alongside China, the country with the most shared borders in the world, including a shared border with China. And so they've had exposure uh, to the virus since at least December, maybe even November. Um, So it's not surprising that the number of cases is so high. It's very surprising that the number of reported deaths are so low. I don't want to go down conspiratorial rabbit holes here. Lord knows there are plenty of those in Russia already. Um, My best guess is you have a combination of factors. Um, One, Russia uh, has, is quite famous, in fact, uh, for its 
uh, lower life expectancies uh, relative to other European countries or the United States or even East Asia, Japan, South Korea, et cetera. Uh, you know, men live to about uh, 67 uh, on average. Uh, women, it's a little bit uh, later, early 70s. But that takes a huge chunk of the potentially most vulnerable population, which is older people. It simply takes them out of the equation because they just don't exist in as large proportion in the population. That's that's a significant epidemiological factor, um, though obviously I'm, I'm not speaking as a public health expert. Uh, second factor is categorizing deaths. Uh, I think a lot of hospitals, especially early on, when there were certainly plenty of deaths, January, February, before this was recognized as a pandemic and that it was COVID, I think a lot of hospitals were, were chalking up pneumonia deaths and other kinds of you know more typical seasonal winter ailments and uh, chalking the deaths up to that rather than to the epidemic uh, or the pandemic. Uh, and then third, and this is where it gets maybe a little more nefarious, is the incentives that uh, either doctors themselves, hospital administrators, or local officials, I'm talking about within Russia's federal system, kind of like the United States, you have you know local and quote-unquote state level, it's called oblasts in Russia level officials, uh, that report their numbers to the center, to Moscow. And, uh, you know, they have incentives to, to show that their region is doing better than other regions. Um, so I think there's some dishonesty there as well. You hear a lot of talk of politically the coronavirus outbreak in Russia would be bad for Russian President Vladimir Putin and his cabinet. Does he have the ability to encourage these smaller municipalities and hospitals in particular to underreport or report in a specific way coronavirus cases and deaths? It's a great question, Trey. Um, Putin has the ability to do anything he wants. Uh, if he wanted to, you know, attempt to conceal information on a massive scale, he could do that. Uh, whether he would succeed or not would depend very much on the degree of compliance from the system as a whole and from Russians. One of the very um, little recognized facts of Vladimir Putin's rule over 20 years is that while it is very much a top-down authoritarian system, um, it is nonetheless uh, an authoritarian system with poor compliance rates. Uh, I mentioned that earlier when I talked about the difference between, for example, East Asian societies and Russia in terms of people not following guidelines because they don't trust the government. That, believe it or not, is even true within the government itself. So everybody sees their personal ambition and, in some cases, their personal safety being best served by loyalty to the center, loyalty to the Kremlin. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are following uh, implementation either in the spirit or the letter of what Putin instructs them to do. In fact, famously, um, a study several years ago uh, that looked at every one of Putin's tens of thousands of presidential orders uh, showed that something like two-thirds of them had gone unimplemented. Now, is that because people are trying to defy the Tsar? No, of course, that would be suicidal. But it's the reality that, you know, putting into place um, policies in a difficult environment, facing as many challenges as you do in Russia, the human factors, um, you know, the security situation, the budget impacts of falling oil prices or, or unpredictable oil prices, uh, and, and uh, you know, things as simple as weather and poor infrastructure, um, you know, stuff happens. And it's hard and it's complicated. And the fact that people don't follow through simply because Putin gave an order is very telling 
about where the system is, in fact, not a well-oiled machine. And you have an example of that right exactly now in the middle of, of this pandemic, which is that Putin has put an enormous priority on social uh, welfare payments, basically saying, uh, recognizing that as in our own country, the people being hardest hit here are the frontline workers, with the lowest incomes, you know, retirees who depend on their pensions, um, uh, young parents, you know, who have young children uh, who are now not able to go to school. And so he said, we are going to make absolutely certain we're going to raise the slightly raise, not, you know, huge, but raise the amount of social payments. And we're going to make absolutely certain that these things continue. And guess what? The data shows that that money is actually not being spent. It's supposed to be spent. It's been allocated from the National Wealth Fund, which is where they tuck away their uh, their profits from uh, oil exports. But it hasn't been spent. And that's an order from the Tsar on an absolutely central issue at a critical moment for his own legitimacy and political survival. And even that's not necessarily happening. You've been listening to Matthew Rojanski, the director of the Wilson Center Kennan Institute. We'll be right back. You mentioned Russia's infrastructure. What is your understanding of the medical infrastructure in Russia? Do you get the sense that amid this outbreak and now that Russia is seeing hundreds of thousands of active cases, that hospitals could be overwhelmed and the amount of medical equipment wouldn't meet the demand? Is that a scenario that Russia could see in the coming days and weeks? Um that scenario is definitely possible, Trey. I, I have my own experience uh, as a patient in the Russian healthcare system, and I would say it varies really, really widely. Um, at the at the high end in Moscow, uh, state the high end state clinics, clinics, private clinics have got some of the best doctors in the world, uh, some of the best equipment in the world, uh, and, and the outcomes are you know comparable to those in the most developed and wealthiest countries in the world, including the United States. But that's Moscow. You go out into the Russian regions, and you have, on the one hand, the legacy of the Soviet system. The Soviets were amazing at uh, broadening access to healthcare because they basically took over. Remember, in 1917, uh, when Russia was basically an agrarian rural empire, a uh, far-flung empire, you know, that ran from the steppes of Central Asia to the Baltic, and they brought relatively modern, modern by early 20th century standards, medical care, you know, penicillin, stuff like that. Uh, uh, hospital delivery of babies rather than, you know, home births uh, to almost every corner of the former Russian Empire, which became the Soviet Union. Um, But they didn't advance in terms of late 20th century or 21st century technology very far beyond that. So what you have is these sort of polyclinics or what are called medical felture points. It's almost like military field medicine. Those are almost everywhere throughout Russia. Even in a small village, you can get access to this kind of basic level of health care. But what you might not have, you very likely would not have, um, in many of Russia's 80-plus federal regions, which is like their states, um, is not a single really high-quality clinical-level hospital that, for example, would have ventilators. And so if you do have somebody, uh, and, and you have it, because you have outbreaks in almost every part of Russia, you have somebody who, in order to save their life, needs critical hospital ICU intervention, um, you know, short of a helicopter evacuation, which that's going to have to be a pretty special person to merit that, uh, you know, they're finished. And, and, and so you're going to have both. You're going to have the system being overwhelmed, the system not being able to take care of people on the one end, and on the other end, you're going to have people who are getting very, very high quality care, 
And it's going to underscore one of the biggest problems in Russia today, which is the gap between the wealthy and privileged in Moscow and St. Petersburg and everybody else. You mentioned ventilators. The U.S. this week sent 200 ventilators to Russia as they struggle with this global pandemic. How do you see this when it comes to U.S.-Russia relations? And is this an olive branch in your view by the Trump administration? And do you think it will help the current rift between the United States and Russia? Well, look, I I just want to be on record in saying, uh, you know, I don't believe that the U.S.-Russia relationship should ever be politicized. And I believe it is too important because uh, given the nuclear dynamics, the world's two biggest nuclear powers, you know, who have literally thousands of warheads aimed at each other that a single mistake could lead to an unintentional uh, exchange. We can't afford to mess around with this relationship. This, you know, uh, pride and ego and image and stuff like that needs to be set aside. Uh, if there is an opportunity to cooperate, if there is an opportunity to, you know, put uh, the value of human life uh, first and foremost and help one another, uh, whether it's in responding to the pandemic or anything else, we have to do that. And so the impulses that both leaders have had, I think, only deserve praise. When they say, hey, we want to send you a plane load of respirators, uh, you know, we want to send a, a, a team of doctors, you know, whatever it may be, I think that those are only praiseworthy. Um, and I understand the skepticism that some people have. I understand, for instance, some big concerns about the, the, the ventilators that um, Russia sent over to the United States because those very same models uh, apparently caused a fire in a St. Petersburg hospital uh, a week or so ago. Obviously, we wouldn't want to use those, so FEMA has taken them back. Um, but, you know, that said, like, I, I don't think that this was a, a scheme or a conspiracy by Russia to try to burn up American hospitals. Uh, I, I think fundamentally Russians and Americans, uh, like everybody else in the world, is in this thing together, uh, and we're only going to come out of it uh, by showing respect for one another and, and putting the value of human life uh, central. And and I would like to see our country, which is relatively better off. I mean, we're considerably wealthier and, you know, we just have a lot more. Once we get our own act together and we take care of our own people, um, you know, Russia's going to need help. And I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be offering help, even though we have real disagreements with the Russians on other issues. Extremely valuable insight. Matt Rojansky, the director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Matt, thanks again for your time. My pleasure, Trey. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.